This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's powered by Digital Media. Today's show is sponsored by Mac Weldon. You know if you've been listening to this podcast before that these guys make awesome hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks. I'm wearing the socks right now. Virginia Heffernan, do I appear to be comfortable in these socks? You love them. Yes, there's not something bright spring in your step. I have an awesome spring in my step. I smell good, too. You can't tell, but you could because these things are made from antimicrobial fiber, naturally antimicrobial fiber. I need that. The fiber is antimicrobial. They smell great. They feel great. You can buy them and get 20% off at MacWeldon.com with the offer code RECODE. Recode. I can remember that. R-E-C-O-D-E. Virginia Heffernan is a smart person. She can remember that. You can remember it as well. Um, if for some reason you don't like these things, I cannot believe that will be the case, but it could be possible. You hang on to them. Mac Weldon sends you your money back. Um, go to MacWeldon.com. Use the promo code Recode. That helps me. It helps you because you get cheaper socks. It's great. I love it. Virginia Heffernan loves it. I'm in. Thanks for joining us, Virginia Heffern. I'm happy to see you, not even just on the internet. I know. this is. Uh, we were going back and forth. I said, would you join us? You said, sure, let's talk to my PR person. You introduced me to your PR person. said, Peter and I are, parentheses, internet, close parentheses, friends. Close well, I mean, why even bother saying internet? Of course you're internet friends. There's there's internet and there's real life, and I think that's some of what we're going to talk about. But yeah, it's really cool to meet you. So you've got a book out, which is technically the reason you're here, but we want to talk about lots of stuff. Um, yeah. Let's talk about the book. Magic and loss. Let's get that out of the way. It's it's not a chore. It's just a thing. Explain in your words what this book is about. Magic and loss treats the internet as a massive work of art to which we're all always contributing. So everything counts. Every uh, little eBay review, every message board post, every uh, Facebook like, those are all contributions to this massive work of art. So massive, it really can be called a civilization. So this is like a... Not like a, this is a social and art sort of criticism of the internet stuff that we sort of pass by and don't think about a lot yeah. in the day to day. By treats, you know, when I say the book treats, I mean with the methodologies of the humanities, which doesn't, you know, maybe that's an effort to sound technical, but really it's, you know, use the same vocabulary and part of your mind that you use to read a poem or admire a photograph and bring that vibe to the internet, as opposed to neuroscience or business acumen. It does not treat the internet as a possibility for SEO, for example, or even as an engineering marvel. It treats I'm more it, interested treats it like in art. It's, it's, yes. If I, if I describe this book as an academic treatment of the internet, that's going to freak people out. And yeah, don't, pick it up, so let's not say that. don't scare people. But there is some smart language here, and you refer to Wittgenstein and Richard Rorty and stuff that I vaguely remember. Things get fancy, but that's college. only to offset the fact that Angry Birds you know, takes up so much of it. It's a lot about Angry Birds, let's face it. And so I dolled that up by mentioning some philosophers. You fancified it up, but it's, but, but people, knuckle-draggers like me can also read it, so yeah. you should get Yeah, it. that was just uh, catnip for the New York Review of Books crowd. So what's the magic part? What's the loss part? The magic is a word from engineering, from coders, you know, technologists that make things that are very, very complicated. We have, I mean, come on, make a guess about how the internet really works and filters into your phone. And then things that are so complicated to create, but appear so simple and elegant and Johnny Ive-esque that, you know, you can only call it magic. That's the magic part. I spend a lot of time kind of respecting that magic because we pay a lot of attention to the internet as a, you know, site of pathology and like chopped into fine pieces by a sous chef, our, our 
attention spans. We either kind of ignore it, right? Because it's just built into our day to day. Or we say, oh, the internet caused terrorism or the internet caused this. Obesity or caused, you know, causes, we bowl alone. I can't remember why we bowl alone, but it's something to do with the internet. Super boring. And and then occasionally, right, if you're in my crowd, we'll celebrate the internet as a sort of business or technological marvel. Right. You say like, Mm -hmm. I can't believe I, you know, could paddle my app this way or like I can get, you know, what's that thing? CRM, customer, something, reputation management. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's what you do if you're a big enterprise company and you yeah. want to sell more stuff. And, and your J Crew ad follows you around everywhere you go, saying like, "Remember this dress." It happens to me a lot. Targeting, yeah. So that's the thing that I don't do in the book is trumpet those features, but I do pay attention to the magic. Try to you know sort out what a possible effect has this had on our sensory emotional lives to live in a new civilization. And you're celebrating. It's a good thing. Magic is a good thing, but there's black magic too. You yeah. know, there's certain things like uh, I, I talk a lot about MP3 compression being, you know, possibly an insult to music. What kind of like, what kind of devious things are those that compression technology up to? And that leads to the loss. Um, so loss Literally is a, lossy, right? If you're an audio nerd. Literally lossy. I love that word lossy from engineering. Um, it's like there's something cute about it and also painful about it. You're you losing know? stuff. You're losing stuff. Now, you know, services like Tidal, like Jay-Z's thing, um, Trumpet, loss less yeah. compression. But there's a lot of skepticism about whether that's possible. So trying to take the measure of that loss, not just in audio and music, but in all, you know, all the arts and all the kind of what I think of as the building blocks of a civilization. And that's that's sort of an idea that people are more comfortable with, right? That the internet and technology brings new things and then gets rid of things and it's, destroys I mean, things. And been, I think most people are sort of comfortable with some notion of that. It's been pretty devastating to all our, like, you know, analog totems. You know, if you like compasses and sextants, the, you know, GPS technology has really seemingly made those obsolete. The newspapers. If you like newsprint, if you like the smell of moldy bindings at a library, then, you know, that might be something that's we're losing. On the other hand, you know, civilizations supersede each other. And, um, you know, some of the book is a kind of cold assessment of why we have these nostalgic and especially, you know, sensory, emotional, aesthetic attachments to certain effects of photography, say, that we feel we're missing. But the gains far outweigh the losses. So this is a thinky, serious book that took you some amount of time to write about the internet. The internet and digital world is is something that changes minute to minute, day to day. Um, I write about it online, and I'm always worried that, oh, crap, this thing I wrote is actually now outdated, or I have a perception of the internet that has now changed, and I'm I'm behind. When you're writing a book like this, and you're really doing some serious thinking about something, how do you grapple with the notion that the thing you're talking about today may be gone by the time the book is out? Or you're in, in some cases, like you're talking about like the visualizer on iTunes, right? yes, which is a yes. thing that if you were listening to music in 2005, everyone knew what that was. I yeah. imagine there's an entire generation that has no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, for those of if you have anyone in that generation listening, the visualizer is the super trippy jobs feature of iTunes that allowed you to basically see music in these like starbursts and stuff. So if you're at a party or at work and not doing any work, eventually yeah. the screen would pop up and the sort of lava lamp sort of digital Okay, thing. you can Im- you all can imagine what he's doing. His yeah. hand is making little starbursts. That's the only when you say visualizer to you know someone who was conscious before 2005, they often make these like goggle-eyed, st- you know, starbursts yeah. with their hands kind of thing, and that's exactly what it is. It sort of puts you in that yeah, that groovy state of mind. And 
But the visualizer passed, and you know, great question about that was one of the questions the editor asked about this book. How? What about things passing? But since I, I think, show in the book that life is passing, but art lasts forever. There are certain tropes or memes that are, you know, profoundly in the code of the internet, and also in the way we've used it from the beginning, including in creating handles, having your identity circle around the images and words, and even like typography that you use on the internet. You know, I got on the internet in 1979. In those days, we were still trying to figure out is it cuter to type in all lowercase? Does that compromise your authority? Are mixed cases a little too proper? What about writing in all caps? Like, does that make you a Trump person and yes. uh, a Lyndon LaRouche person? Yeah, all caps, by the way, is supposedly a way that some data organizations um, quantify your eligibility for a loan if you use all caps. Um, makes you more or less. I'm assuming less. Well, you know, I don't want to. I don't know either. I don't want to show prejudice. I don't want. Yes, exactly. I don't want to shut people out because you know loans are important. So you're saying, look, there's parts, of apps, and programs, and 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 things are going to come and go, but some of these ideas will continue through. Absolutely, the visual, the visualizer section of the book is about something called synesthesia. You know, when your senses cross. So there are people who say, you know, they can taste numbers and see sound. And uh, Steve Jobs, not to just harp on Apple, but you know, was one of them. He he thought at one point that he, you know, aided by hallucinogens, felt the wheat field, a wheat field play Bach or sing Bach or something. So he basically was seeing Bach in the movement of the this wheat. This is a good book to read stoned. You know, I like to think that it is like that really beholding the internet, sitting with the internet, feeling and palpating the internet is uh, a natural high. That's a deft way of answering that. Really <laughs> um, I don't advocate drugs. But uh, I was thinking, as I was going through the index and looking, okay, what does what is, what is Virginia have to say about Snapchat? Because Snapchat really befuddles me right now. Yes. I, I feel a bunch of things about it, and none of them are really great. Oh right. Um, but there's a handful of references to Snapchat. I'm like, all right, we'll get to that. And then what do you say about emoji? Because that's another thing. There's yeah. zero references to emoji, at least in the index. Okay. And I know that you spend a bunch of time in the book saying, like, one of the things the internet has done has moved us towards an image-based way yeah, that's of right. consumption. So I assume that has something to do with the way you think about Snapchat and emoji. But yeah. you tell me, what do you think about those two? So Snapchat, I am a promiscuous and kind of maybe insane adopter of new technologies. I, I wouldn't really say early because who knows what the crest is. I mean, for and for example, like, I don't know that there was an early way to adopt Visualizer because there wasn't like a long tail of Visualizer. It was, it was just, just there. Like, yeah. So I sort of hear about something, you know, like Friendster or Venmo, and I'm just like, go. I, I got to do that. So Snapchat, I was ready to do it. I'm 46. I was ready to start my whole cycle again and download Snapchat and become a Snapchat person and, you know, cravenly try to get followers and, like, you know, get, get in there and be, be early. And I had this terrifying feeling. I don't know if you ever get this. Maybe you're around my age. Maybe you're, like, a lot younger. But I had this terrifying feeling that I had reached the edge of my yeah. capacity. Yeah, yeah. I Something in the interface... Yeah, it's super all, common. It's okay. It's almost got that Minecrafty thing of like, this is illegible to me. Wow. Yeah. And this then is... the question is whether they did it intentionally or not, but it, it works yeah. as a velvet rope to keep you. I'm 44. You meet a bunch of other okay. people out. And if you're six, like my younger kid is, yeah. it's no big deal. He was showing me how to use the, right. the face swap. 
you know, the, you know, if you spend a lot of time on Facebook as I do, you like to live in, you know, a retirement community out to pasture yeah. with a lot of old people because that lively youthful spirit fortunately has left us alone on Facebook. They, you get to have reasoned debates, you know, Dem- Democrats and Republicans weighing in on their grandchildren and, you know, what they think of the election and mixed cases. So I'm sure you've gone back to Snapchat at this point because it's such a big deal. You back, have to look absolutely. at it. What do you think of that aesthetic and, and sort yeah. of the way people present to each other or at least publicly? I love the way that the culture is constantly surprising us. So if you think that YouTube is this repository for all these video and the thing that we want from the internet begins to be, you know, short form, but for last for, you know, video that lasts forever, that's like in those data storage places in the cloud that like lives on and lives on and lives on and will never die. So Snapchat suddenly is like, what we need on the internet is more death. You know, these are like 60s and 70s ideas about, you know. Because the stuff disappears. Life against death because the disappearing factor. So, you know, I remember a little bit thinking, wow, there is no right only place on the internet. You know, life is, I mean, that's from coding too, but there's no, life is right only. You can't, it goes, keeps going forward. You can't read it. You can't pause or rewind it yet. You can't search it. You can't archive it and so on. But the internet is just like infinitely searchable and archivable. So what does Snapchat do in its infinite brilliance, but make something that is, you know, sort of, or, you know, three quarters of the way, vanishing, dying, decaying stuff that doesn't last forever. And I, I think that that's a brilliant move. You know, there are all these ways that, you know, part of the way that I adjust to the loss is so many other people have felt it and addressed it in ingenious, ingenious ways. And this is why I think the collective wisdom is so much at work, because no one person could do all this. Pushing back on MP3 technology, for example, with the rise of live music and vinyl. You know, the, the, we thought, we now assume that like things are rolling toward greater and greater digitation, digitization. Mary Meeker's report said, of course, millennials expect their cars to be entirely connected. Right. They expect them to be entirely connected, but do they want them to be entirely connected? Watch. They'll push back on that like they did on... as a novelty, someone will create a... a well, actually, we, we've heard about this as well. We said the idea of driving your own car will be like a hobby. Oh, absolutely. Like, like in the same I just, way, like, you know, growing out your mustache and keeping your vinyl record collection. Oh, come on, and learning the ukulele and all that stuff. I mean, all that Williamsburg Bushwicky kind of stuff, butchering your East own meat. Bushwicky now, yeah. Who would have known that butchering your own meat would become, in Mark the heyday of Snapchat, the, the other, you know, the thing to do? All right. So there's a ton of stuff we can talk about for a very long time, each one of these. Your book is divided up into text, design, video, music. Yeah. We could talk about all of those. It would take forever. You should yep. buy the book and read the book. Um, is there one big idea that you want people to sort of take away from this? Or is there something you want us to do when we're consuming the internet? Yeah, I want to, I've been thinking about an article I read in The Atlantic a million years ago that said there's never been a time that the bones of man haven't been found near, you know, prehistoric man hasn't been found near the bones of a dog or a little proto-wolf, domesticated wolf. And um, culture has, the, you know, aqueducts of the internet have never been far from the frescoes. The bones of the internet, the plumbing of the internet, the engineering of the internet has always had all these cultural components near it. And for those of us who majored in the humanities, in history, in art history, in English, in, you know, social sciences, we, our tools, we don't have to go to general assembly to learn to code. You can still keep your head and remember those things you used to think about in college and use those tools as a way to steady yourself in your internet life, get some distance from it, um, become a moral actor, and become an aesthetic actor. Enjoy it. 
make choices. Do you want us to sort of actively think about what I'm doing when I'm using Instagram, when I'm using Facebook, when I'm watching Netflix, or should I sort of let that stuff melt into the I mean, the background? I think savoring it is the way to go. You know, it's there's, for instance, Facebook. You know, you know, I try to follow widely. I try to befriend a lot of people, and as a result. The, my, the mix on Facebook has turned into content that I would have paid for in other eras. There's like a lot of really interesting essays, especially around this election, short essays by people that they are giving away and that you can mix it up with, that you can write back and respond to. And that's just if you like essays. If you like poetry, Twitter might be the place for you. If you like Snapchat, if you like video and new uses of video, Snapchat is, is really an extraordinary place. And I'm just talking about the social networks. You know, for deeper interactions, the message boards are amazing. And uh, and also, the, you know, sometimes we forget that Wikipedia is a great gateway. You know, we are fundamentally, many of us are researchers, and we tend to disparage it by calling it stalking. But, you know, if you're stalking the Romanoffs or you're stalking, you know, an int- a subject that interests you, China, then you are doing research and reporting, and you are l- building a more powerful way of interacting with the world. This is a book about the internet. Um, you've made a living, or many parts of your career, living writing things that are primarily print, right, New York Times, yeah. um, that are about digital culture. Yeah. Um, when I'm reading your book and you're talking about a specific YouTube artist you're following, I think, oh, I want to go to my, I want to stop reading. I want to go to my computer, yeah. pull up this YouTube clip. Yeah. Um, is there a specific challenge to writing about the internet in a print or print like product? It's uh, well. Where you, you know, sort of assume that I mean, normally if I'm reading the, if I was watch, if I was consuming this on the internet, I would obviously be stopping and clicking on a hyperlink or going to Wikipedia and yeah. finding this stuff myself. Yeah. So it seems like there is definitely a three dimensional product that has to be warehoused and shipped. The book at the end of this, but there are also you know the very day it was released, the audiobook appeared too, which is you know compressed technology. Is that you? Is that your compressed voice? I did the preface, but I spent the whole time trying to hide my lisp and get, getting scared about pronouncing Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. That uh, you know, fast forward through the preface because um, Candace Thaxton reads the rest of it, and okay. she is smooth, smooth, smooth. So the audiobook came out that day, and so did the ebook. And uh, you know, the book itself had lived in a manuscript in Google Docs um, for a long time, and um, all my exchanges with the editor were, you know, electronic and an email. So, you know, a lot of this was a digital production. And then for, you know, a a kind of a different experience, you know, a, you know, I like criticism. So like I wrote about television for a long time. You're not watching the show when you read television criticism. And, um, you know, I trained or whatever it's called, did a PhD in English. I wanted to be a literary critic for a long time. So, you know, writing off the page or writing away from things, there's something very challenging and interesting about conjuring an object that happens in another idiom. You know? So your expectation is sit with me, read what I've written, yeah. think about it, don't get up in the middle of this and go, go I mean, to your laptop. It is you a can, little but... bit synesthetic, sense crossing. You know, you, um, I love to read perfume blogs. I love to read descriptions of things that, you know, I should be or, uh, you know, ultimately might be experiencing with another sense. Well, and you are much more involved than I. I can't read about wine. I want to drink the wine. I was going to ask you if, yeah, I was going to say something about, uh, yeah, liquor is a perfect example. I mean, some people like scotch criticism or, or uh, you know, writing about like wine. Scotch. Uh, you like scotch. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it would seem to be an esoteric taste, but if you, you know, most of online writing, we thought that there'd be a lot of reporting and narrative when, you know, at the beginning of the web. Um, in fact, there is tons of what can only be called essays and criticism, you know. 
people me, responding me, to a video or linking to a video. And, you know, it's amazing how, how infrequently people on Twitter actually click the links. Yeah. You know, you want the comment about like, you know, Trump is so poor now that he might as well be a Democrat. And that's enough. And then you retweet it. And then, yes. And then you don't go to the link saying that he's run out of money. I mean, a lot of people on Twitter are bots anyway, right? And the, that, that is a whole thing. I mean, but I, m- I remember, you know, when the web cropped up and there were things like, there was an expectation that writing and reading would be a different thing because of hyperlinks. Yes. And I think about it all the time when I write new stuff. I think I don't need to, I don't need to do an inverted pyramid. I don't need to go and give you paragraphs of context because I can just reference it and link to it. And the expectation is you're sort of come with me. Yeah. Um, it is a different way of writing. You mentioned TV. This is where I first started reading you when yes. you were on Slate. And you did this great pop culture, stinky criticism of TV. Um, it was online. So there were two novel things. One you were writing online. We're still There wasn't a lot of sophisticated yeah, right. stuff online. And then you were writing a smart stuff about television, which at the time, this is the late 90s. Yeah, that's right. Was a novel idea. There weren't a lot of smart people writing thinky but reachable stuff about television. And now that's standard, right? That's table stakes. It was funny because, um, as you say, I was writing online. I don't know if you had this experience, but, you know, your parents would say, you know, I would say, like, I wrote a piece for Salon. And they would say, like, but did you really write it somewhere? You know, it wasn't. If it appeared online, it was, like, lesser. It might as well be that you wrote it in your diary. I mean, let's face it. You were not published if you were on something.com. Or you go to someone and say, I want to write about you. And they say, well, for the magazine? Yeah, for for the the real thing. Yeah. Yeah. So They still still say that. They still kind of say that. That's true. So I – and I found that the the alt-weeklies that are now, you know, largely out of business, but that were my dream to write for, like The Village Voice and so on, were such tough not to crack. Like I couldn't get a, you know, answer to my written, mailed queries to The Village Voice to save my life. So – Got no time for you. I started writing for um, MTV and VH1. They needed a lot of patter. I love patter. I mean, patter's what we're doing right now. Yeah. So, like, so I wrote some patter for some hosts and VJs. And uh, then Jake Weisberg at Slate heard that I had been doing that and also heard that I was, like, you know, fumbling around trying to finish my dissertation in English. And he thought that was a hilarious combination. Like, how could I be writing literary criticism and using MTV's printers? Now it can be told to, uh, you know, print out my dissertation. And doing this at the same time. So he thought it would be fun to try me on TV criticism. And uh, I thought it was fun, too. Do you ever think, oh, wow, I was, I was a little early writing about TV. Um, it'd be fun to be writing full-time about TV now when everyone gets that this is the golden age and there's a million smart people you can have a dialogue with and bounce back and forth. Do you say, yeah, I've done it. I'm, I'm done you with know, TV. You know, I like writing for critics, and maybe I'm just lazy, but I like writing about things that easily fall apart in your hands. So like a really well-wrought urn of a thing, like you don't, it's very, very challenging to write, say something new about a Keats poem. So like generally in graduate school, we were at least encouraged to write about like, you know, Victorian newspapers, because you could find little tropes and oddities that nobody knew about, where like Keats is just too well written. He shuts you out. It's like the Apple interface. So I'm lost here. Is the Sopranos and the Americans, are they the well-wrought the Earn? Sopranos and the Americans, I was just going to say it. Well, Rod Earn, not enough to say about it, where like you see Flavor Flav on, v- on a weird VH1 thing trying to pick up his life and dating. I think he was dating um, yeah. um, Sylvester very, Stallone's very ex-wife. tall and blonde, yeah. Yes. And just watching them, these two misfits trying to make a life together, it was like, you know, an incredible and, you know, quite depressing but quite moving movie where trying to talk about the performances, you know, ingenious performances on The Sopranos at the time. I didn't think I could say anything new about it, where just calling attention 
to the, you know, virtues of a reality show or the like hidden anger in Rosie O'Donnell at the time or, you know, was a way to make a living. And it was so much fun to be, you know, one of the only people writing about reality TV, one of the like high points of my life for sure. So you did that at Slate, then you moved to the Times, and then you make, given, especially given what you just said, a sort of natural transition to writing about the internet for the Times, which again was a rare thing to have sort of the New York Times, which was... Yeah. It's really hard to remember now, but there was up until really a couple of years ago, the Times was very distinct from the internet Yeah, and, yep. and carried itself that way. So to have someone like you saying, hey, this is what's on YouTube yes. was a thing. Well, so the first time I saw Flavor Flav on that show, um, it wasn't quite a rehab show. It was sort of more like Big Brother. They The first time I saw that, I thought, oh, this is like so incredible. I mean, I don't want to get too trippy, but like it was like the unconscious of the culture coming through in all these ways. Like what does failure look like? What had success looked like? What was this like black, white, tall, tall, small um, relationship with this other has-been star? Brigitte Nielsen, right? Yeah, I think that's her last yeah, name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then I had, and you know, compared to that, that creamy resolution of a perfect MTV video just like shut me out. It was like, you're not welcome here. We only want, and I wanted to be with the ragtag type. So when I first saw YouTube, I saw this video that this kid had made in his room. We now know a lot of these like, you know, videos made by kids in their bedrooms, backlit, horribly shot. You couldn't even see the kid's face, but he was playing this guitar solo, Pachelbel's Canon, in this complicated rock arrangement. I had the same flavor flavor response. I was just like, who is he? How did he make this? How is it in my living room now or you know, in my bedroom on my screen? And what the heck is he doing? Why did he do this? Why did he pull the cap over his face? Why did he take the time to upload it? Why won't he why is he showing this aggro finger work, but you know, this completely demure face so that he won't even show us? You know, I couldn't stop thinking about it. Did and the I also times thought get what you wanted to do? Or did it seem like, oh, this is an oddity, this is a one-off, and now you'll get back to writing about a real thing? Well, Andrew Ross Sorkin and I launched, he launched a, a blog called Deal Book on the same day that I launched a blog called Screens to write about online video. And, you know, as you can see, Screens left Deal Book in the dust, and unfortunately, Andrew Ross Sorkin is panhandling now with Flavor Flav. But, yes, I, hope, um, I hope he can turn it around. Yeah, I really, I just worry about him. You know, I, I worry he, about I him. hope he catches a break. Yeah, I'm, uh, I've been, uh, yeah, sending him money on some <laughs> charity sites. Um, he, um, but anyway, no, Dealbook caught on and made sense for people and showed up in people's inboxes and screens had like a slower burn. But it was really also fun to connect with because I started thinking about fun too, this guitarist. Um, there's a Japanese term, charisma hiki. It's a famous person who never leaves their house, right? That's great. And I, you know, they're charismatic and they're shut in. So I liked that because I loved never leaving the house and yet, you know, not fame, but writing and putting that out there for, you know, 500 angry commenters to pile on on Slate. So I started to think there must be other people that wanted to be in digital space, but like wanted to do it from their rooms. And sure enough, I published screens I've, you know, found them. I don't know if they had been Times readers, if they read A1, if they read op-ed, but they wanted to talk about this video and share their experiences with it. And that's still, you know, that's still my, where I live, you know, with that scene. You live there. I think like a lot of people, you were probably more engaged on Twitter at one point and then pulled back for various reasons. You you, you mentioned piled on, you were piled on at one point because you were messing out about Christianity and and religion and God. Thanks, bringing it back. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's it's in your book. I don't, I I can bring it up. Did that particular experience sort of make you rethink 
the way you want to interact on Twitter or digital media at all? You know, this thing of, is it, I mean, I kind of love this question because, and I'm going to equivocate if you don't mind. No, go um, for it. On the, um, you know, for a long time, I've been such a kind of Bolshevik for the digital revolution because I really was hoping to placate fears and particularly in Times Magazine readers that this was going to destroy everything and show, show everyone how, you know, they could still have spy novels and they could still, you know, do crossword puzzles in digital space. Okay. So... I'd been saying that for a long time, and I'd been trying to encourage other writers to embrace the comment section, you know, embrace what they called at the Times, the, I mean, at, the, at Slate, the fray, and, you know, finally find out who our readers were and what they cared about, you of know? Of course. You, and then for a while, this was like if you were, like you said, like if you were sort of cutting edge, yeah. thinking about the internet, this is what you said. It's, yes. an, it's an unallied good to be interacting with your readers, consumers, whoever. Of course I, you should do it. Uh, absolutely. It's objectively a better thing. It's objectively a better thing, and that, you know, consumer reviews on Amazon are a good thing. And, you know, just this let a thousand flowers bloom. It's amazing how much a YouTube comment section loved it, thought there was hidden brilliance in it. And then the Twitter Coliseum, you know, put me in a, you know, body cast for six weeks. I, you know, read it, led with a story that I wrote. I thought it was a joke, but it didn't land. Or I thought it was playful, but it didn't quite land. It's hard to be funny on the internet sometimes. Oh, my God. It really is, especially when it's um, overthought, you know? Like, a nice one-liner is great, but a... Um, you, can, you can screw up the one-liner, Oh, too. my God. Oh, that's true. You can screw up the one-liner. So they read, led with it, and that is a bad day when they lead with, you know, what an idiot. Yeah. Link. You went in the spanky machine. I went in the spanky machine. It was, um, you know, it was a bad time, but it wasn't a bad time. And, the, you know, I think the lesson I learned with Twitter, the, the thing I would have said pre, you know, Twitter Coliseum was... We all should sort of constantly subject our immune systems to, like, you know, the vox populi, to the word of the people, to, you know, whatever the, you know, we shouldn't stay away from even white nationalism or even, you know, whatever form it takes. Get in the mix. See what's what. Get in the mix and see what's what. And afterward, I realized my avatar should not stay away from those things. You know, page 88 is my Twitter handle. She is really good at taking sniper fire from me. She just, like, stays silent. Sometimes she has witty comebacks. Sometimes she says, like, don't hurt me. But she's got, you know, a whole range of responses. Me, like the person you're looking at in space with like a bloodstream and a heartbeat, doesn't isn't my Twitter handle. You know, it took me a long time to and realize that. You're evolved that. enough that you can you can separate those two Ye- things because it seems logical. But I think the practical effect for most people is I just got insulted, I just got harassed. Well, if there's another effect of the book, a huge thing I say is you know we you know use the techniques and some of us are very you know adept at this. Use the techniques of fiction and fiction writing. You know, your photograph is probably filtered if not photoshopped, you know, you're a digital creation. And the things you say on Twitter are not the things you say in life. And that is a distinction that you can make. And that's where training in the humanities, in voice, in perspective, in point of view, and in kind of creating that character is comes in supremely handy. I mean, That someone, seems like pretty heady stuff. But I mean, you'll see a lot of well, very earnest, earnest sounds like an insult, a lot of smart people Lena Dunham saying, Twitter's not safe for me. I can't handle being insulted on Twitter. Yeah. Or not that I can't handle. It's actually dangerous. I mean, I blame Jacob there. Weisberg because the, that first piece I wrote for, so I was in my 20s, that first piece I wrote for Slate on Rosie O'Donnell turning dark on her show and gobbling candy in a weird way was, I think the first comment on it was, Virginia, 
does your mother have any children who don't have brain damage? I pity you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my first thought went to Andrew, my brother, who is, sa- is free from brain damage. So my mother at least got one. But um, I, so I went into Jake ready to resign. You know, I just was like, if people, you know, if someone said that harsh thing about it, it must be idiocy. And Jacob, who was like digital before I was, couldn't have been happier. And so, uh, you know, I made the split, not out of being the split between me and my avatar, not out of, you know, being evolved, but out of uh, fear of pain. (laughs) So, you know, someone asked me my, I had a time where my Wikipedia entry was being kind of vandalized. And um, someone asked me this like Zen question, which was, what if you are not your Wikipedia entry? What if? Totally. What if you are not your first page Google returns? What if you are not like a, you know, a mean comment on something? What if you are, you can create this character who's villainous or who's powerful? You know, my first online handle was Athena. I was nine. Of course I called myself Athena, but you know, there's gotta be like an Athena person out there, you know, doing that, taking sniper fire, you know? Yeah, this all sounds very reasonable to me. It also sounds like someone who, I was just talking to the genius guys, genius.com oh, yeah. guys, and they were talking about, there was an incident where someone felt that they were threatened because people were critiquing her on genius. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm missing something. This is the, if you're publishing something, of course it can be criticized. I mean, if you I, don't want to criticize, don't publish. It's a, Yeah, a lot of people are publishing without kind of quite, you know, maybe quite being aware of that. But then I'll talk to very smart people and say, no, 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 there is a difference between public space and private space, and you can have private space on the internet even if you publish something that's technically public. Yeah. I get confused. You know, when you mentioned the philosophers that I talk about, one of them is Richard Rorty. It's, he identified as a philosopher, but, you know, some of the stuff he said could have been said in a self-help book. Make your private life beautiful, make your mental space beautiful, and your public life humane. And, they're really different. And part of the way that Rorty, who was my professor at UVA, bifurcated, as you say, private and public life really has influenced the way that I that I think of the internet. This is this is a very evolved conversation. I'm a little worried. We should we should dumb I it down. Should we talk help. about should we talk about Yahoo? Oh You worked at Yahoo for a minute. I worked at Yahoo for a minute. I, I can um, predict how this story turns out. Two long years, actually. And um, you know that thing where Michael Pollan says you shouldn't eat anything your grandmother didn't recognize as food, you know, like a Tootsie Pop or whatever? Yeah. Which I, sounds good if you have the ability to pick and choose your food. And I just suddenly, right, exactly. And I suddenly thought, like, I think my grandmother did know a Tootsie Pop. That's the one with the Tootsie Roll inside. Oh, God, yeah. she definitely knew that. I, you know, sort of thought maybe I shouldn't be working at a place that my grandmother wouldn't recognize as journalism. But it took me a while to realize that Yahoo News, and there are terrific, terrific reporters there. I, and I don't, you know, whatever, I, they've done a, actually a lot of great reporting that gets a little buried. But, you know, when media becomes, forget journalism, let's call it media. You know, I was writing for MTV first, so I knew that, you know, entertainment was part of the package. Media becomes marketing. So, Mark, it really is just this content meant to attract more users to the Yahoo weather app. And that when I realized that we didn't, that Yahoo was doing off with your head firings, you know, you'd make some misstep, say something into a hot mic that was wrong. And um, when I realized they were doing that and that there was no Floyd Abrams First Amendment lawyer you could call on, that there was just literally no investment in the First Amendment anywhere as far as the eye could see, then I sort of realized, because I had started as a fact checker at The New Yorker, oh, this isn't journalism. There's no stake in doing this because writing without fear or favor, you know, to entertain, inspire, inform is not part of our our mandate at all. You're making stuff. You're making stuff. It goes on a page and maybe there's an ad or maybe it gets you into an app. 
Right. You're making text assets that when they turn to text liabilities, meaning they said, you know, the wrong thing or they made a, you know, an off joke, um, turned into it was something like bummer code that, you know, our coder leader, CEO, you know, would dip in like Simpson, Simpson, you know, like <laughs> Montgomery Burns and say, Heffernan, you're out. Um, and uh, and you got out before you got pushed out. She, I got out. I just was on a contract. I didn't renew my contract after two years. And I also really think that Yahoo News, in spite of all that, has become an actual news operation. Unfortunately, some of its stories are buried, but there were some really, really terrific yeah, no, writers Yahoo, there. I mean, because logically, Yahoo should stop paying people to write good stuff. There's no reason for them to do that. I mean, they can they, get it other places. The work was but on. They, they are creating good stuff. There. They do create good stuff. And the work we did there, though, was, you know, it was like they were eyeing us all the time to be like, how can bots do this? How can bots do this? And so, you know, it had that Detroit factor of like, you could be replaced, you could be replaced. I've been thinking that the um, United Auto Workers should really, really come to and give like a TED talk about job retraining to people in journalism. Wouldn't that be a good idea? Yeah, uh, I always use the metaphor with my friends, like, this is what being a steel worker in like... Oh, yeah, Allentown, in, 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 you know. In, in the 70s, like, oh, you totally. know what's coming. Yeah, Times Square, Allentown. You know what's coming. Yeah. And you can talk about retraining. We're probably not going to get retrained. Right. And I, yeah, the, I mean, where you, if you don't, can't make data viz, it doesn't matter that you, you know, ran the Paris Bureau for 25 years. I do think, actually, that those unions could come and talk to us just about the sensory emotional i keep saying this but about the you know effects on the brain of um, i'm sure it sucks having your work turned well your shirt sucks but you also probably know a little bit what it's like um and sometimes i gotta hand it to him like an aggregator can sometimes be a good thing and you know the first reaction and everyone has this is like if something that might cost me my job has got to be a bad thing for the culture and you know No again if you're super elevated you can say this is bad for me and good for yeah. other people or my avatar you can split yourself but yes. most people in the real world right have a mortgage or kids or yep. some and by the way it's a sense of self-worth and if that thing is taken from you it doesn't really matter if the culture is advancing Absolutely. let's end on an up note I love it. What's your next project after the book? So it's about anti-digital culture and, ah. um, and you know, the, all this material culture, including the return of books and printing that have, um, you know, steadily been pushing back on the digital revolution and surprising us. So anti-digital you know, culture is vinyl and cutting your own. And live music and the Rolling Stones making a billion dollars touring, you know, in their their uh, sunset age, way more than they made in the sunset. heyday of, yeah. Yeah, perpetual sunset of the heyday of Gimme Shelter. And why do we want to see people live? Why do we want to Eki Homo behold the man at TED Talks? Like, why do we want to meet in, you know, I mean, you and I just met in person and it was like um, very exciting, very exciting, right? And it's the value of that undigitizable experience has been jacked up by all our digital experience. It's like been teed up. So I think really we're in this like antithesis, like, you know, real pushback on, real defiance, real rebellion kind of um, move to return to pencils and all that. And what is that like? What's it going to look like? What does it mean for the internet? Um, What does it mean for that other weird thing called offline life? And that'll be a book? That's a book. That's a book. And in the meantime, while I'm waiting for the next book, can I find you online somewhere? You can find me um, occasionally in the New York Times and often on Medium. I'm also writing for Politico and the LA Times. And Twitter at page 88. Twitter at, 
yeah, page 88. I mean, that's not really me, but you. you know, you can see you. a confection I made up. <laughs> Virginia, thanks for coming in real life. For Thank this you. conversation it was awesome. Thank if you guys you. like listening to this, well, you know how to get it because you're listening to it, but you could also find it on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and you can get Kara Swisher's show, Rico Deco, Lauren Good, as Too Embarrassed to Ask. We have these conferences that are real life experiences. You can get all of that at Recode Replay. Uh, thanks to our sponsor, Mac Weldon. Thanks to Digital Media, who makes all this possible. Thanks again to Virginia. Uh, remember that you can get Magic and Loss in hardcover. You can get it on a Kindle. There's an audiobook somewhere, right, Virginia? There's an audiobook, exactly. Google will help you find all this stuff. You can try to spot my lisp in the preface. I didn't hear the lisp. Thank you, Virginia. <laughs> I'm Peter Kafka. I'll see you next week. Thank you.